be able to introduce uh, Luigi Rizzo. I've known Luigi for a long time because we've both worked on FreeBSD projects. And Luigi's also known for a bunch of different work in networking. He's done FEC for various things, including multicast. Um, he's done um, TCP friendly rate control. Um, everywhere he goes, I think he runs into somebody who's used Dominate for something. So, uh, uh, but today he's going to be talking about uh, very high speed networking. It's interesting work he's been doing on shuffling, shuffling packets around very quickly. Okay, thanks. So. Quick thing about these two pictures, the one here is the view from my office in Pisa, I'm lucky to have my department very close to the Leaning Tower, and the one on the right is Google, where I spent a semester last, uh, last fall. Not quite the same, but <laughs> at least nice weather in both, <coughs> both places. Um, I'll be talking about three related uh, topics that uh, reflect the work we did on uh, high-speed networking <coughs> in the past couple of years. <coughs> Sorry. Um, the first one is uh, uh, one, one system which uh, we call NetMap. Uh, I have a very poor fantasy in picking names for my, my tools, and so they, they all have the word the net inside. Very annoying. Uh, NetMap was designed to uh, achieve uh, line rate on 10 gigabit cards uh, on a commodity operating system, even with the smallest possible packet, which is something that is not normally possible if you go through the entire network stack in the Linux or FreeBSD or Windows. Um, and our target with that project was to implement uh, software routers, which is uh, middle boxes of various kind. And uh, after that, uh, we figure out that uh, using the same techniques, uh, we, uh, we could uh, um, implement software switches which are uh, an important tool in the interconnection of virtual machines and also uh, can be used as a generic mechanism to interconnect processes that need to communicate at a very high rate, possibly higher than what uh, uh, a socket or bidirectional pipe uh, gives you. And so we came up with uh, another project called Vale, which implements the NetMap API, which I will show you, on a number of software ports, uh, and uh, you can uh, use this software switch, uh, basically uh, in an internet bridge, uh, to interconnect uh, all of your clients. And uh, after that, uh, we looked at how to use the Vale switch in uh, cooperation with the uh, virtualizer, uh, QMU, in our experiments, but could be something else, and found that uh, the solutions that are used by QMO to uh, implement the virtualized part of the, net, of the network interface are not particularly efficient, and uh, so we work on improving that uh, uh, IO path, the network IO path. We, we reach uh, very, very important results in the sense that we are now able to, to run uh, instances of uh, FreeBSD or Linux on top of uh, our uh, software switch, and in general within QMO. Uh, moving more than a million packets per second uh, across uh, uh, interfaces if we are using sockets and more than five million packets per second between uh, two virtual machines if those virtual machines are using NetMap internally. And this is uh, much faster than, than the original QM by probably a couple of order of magnitudes. And also it's uh, mostly the same kind of data rates that you can achieve on uh, so-called bare metal with those, those uh, operating systems. And that's very interesting because now with this setting, you, you can uh, uh, do also 
testing and improvements on, uh, on play with improvements on the on the network stack on your operating system without having to to use a high performance hardware 10 gig cards switches that are very expensive and not generally uh, available in terms of uh, code availability uh, for a long time as david was saying i have been a freebsd developer and so most of my contribution to freebsd were in in the kernel and in the network stack as time goes, I found that uh, FreeBSD is not uh, a mainstream operating system. Uh, well, not hard to, to realize that. But uh, I also found that uh, it wasn't too hard to uh, take uh, most of my code and have it running in the Linux kernel by using very simple solutions like providing um, a few shim, shim layers to, to adapt the uh, internal FreeBSD API to the Linux ones or vice versa. So these days what I'm, what I'm doing mostly is develop on FreeBSD but also uh, keep an eye on what is needed to, to run my software on Linux and, and for NetOne first and then Val and the other improvements that we've been doing, uh, we are developing in parallel the, well, our code base is uh, using the FreeBSD API but uh, we generally uh, distribute at the same time the FreeBSD version and the Linux version. So in a way there are no excuse for people not to use my stuff and also no excuse for me to use shortcuts that only, that only work on, on FreeBSD. And uh, this is also good because uh, I get more exposure, uh, people report, uh, report bugs uh, so I have an easier time finding and fixing them and so on. Um, my, so this said, the NetMap code and the software switch are standard in FreeBSD and uh, there is a, a kernel module and uh, some accompanying program for user space and, uh, on my website that uh, you can use on, uh, on Linux. Unlike Daminet, uh, we don't have a Windows or a macOS version of this, uh, of this code. Uh, I cannot say yet because I don't have the, the time and the resource to, to work myself on uh, Windows and macOS uh, version for this. Um, okay, I'll come back to the details on availability later if there, there is interest. So the first part of the talk um, is uh, related to the challenges that uh, you might have in doing uh, direct packet I.O. Uh, which is something that you really need to do when you want to build a software switch or a software router. You, you are interested in entire content of the packet including headers, which is something that the uh, normal uh, host stacks are not uh, optimized to, uh, to handle. So yes, you have raw sockets, you, you have BPF, etc., but those are not terribly efficient. And also the, the interest in uh, uh, OS developers is to optimize other parts of the system, like raw uh, TCP throughput, for instance, or scalability in the number of connections, which is uh, where most of the workloads and commercial interest uh, are. So the API that uh, we use to, um, to move packets uh, in and out of the kernel uh, was designed 40 years ago. It's basically sockets and uh, variations of, uh, of sockets. And the constraints that uh, people, or I should say we, uh, in, at some point, uh, we had at the time uh, were totally different from uh, what we have today. The CPUs were slow, the memories were slow, there were no caches, uh, pipelines uh, if uh, present in a CPU were very, very shallow. Um, Multi-processor multi systems uh, were something that you could read in the paper but not really buy. And, uh, and also the target, as I said, was to layer four protocols, basically TCP and, and above. 
So the, the API are available everywhere, but they're slow. They're very flexible, uh, and they get you everywhere. Um, another thing that is done in operating system is heavy layering of uh, software. Uh, if, you, if you ever look, and we, we, I, I'll have a, a slide on this. If you ever look at the internals of uh, the network stack, uh, you see that uh, packets are handed off uh, through a huge number of, uh, of layers, which is great when it comes to designing things. Uh, it's not so great when it comes to um, make the system efficient. And also, one thing that uh, uh, we found uh, uh, during our experiments is that, uh, well, socket are the generic API to move packets through the system, and they're incredibly flexible. And this in huge flexibility is uh, replicated at every stage in the, in the network stack. At every stage, uh, you can move packets around and uh, mark uh, uh, the, the packet with the number of attributes uh, on who should do the checksumming, whether you should do TS or not, encryption, uh, split buffers, uh, merge buffers, etc., etc., etc. Now, being flexible, again, is great, but that means that you have to spend a lot of time on any, on any single step of the processing. And, and the problem is like this. Would you play Tetris on the right? Uh, uh, side of the screen or on, on the left side of the screen. Certainly, if all, all the blocks are the same size, etc., it's very easy to make a decision. You only have to decide where to, the, the, the column where to put the, the, the block. On the right side, you have to turn the block, see if it fits, etc., etc. So you waste a lot of time in making those decisions. And this is exactly the situation that you have in the kernel for every pocket that has to be moved up or down. Uh, we are playing Tetris, the standard Tetris, and we would like to play the, the easy Tetris. Now, um, just to give you an idea of what happens uh, in the kernel when you do a send to, and uh, what, what are the times involved in those operations. This is from FreeBSD, and I have a, a simple program sending uh, UDP packets. So the user program is invoking send to, and my, in my case, uh, it does this in a very tight loop. So, for instance, if I, instead of actually calling send to call a stub function, then just return a repeat, uh, this, uh, this program is able to send, to invoke send to every eight nanoseconds. So, very fast. Now, if I enter the kernel on FreeBSD, the running time for each iteration becomes 104 nanoseconds. That's the, basically the cost of... Uh, um, <coughs> doing the entering the kernel and exiting uh, the kernel itself. Now inside the kernel we go through this uh, sequence of functions and uh, I, I'm not inventing anything. This is the actual sequence of function that uh, you hit when you want to send a packet. So uh, we, we try to measure how much time is spent uh, depending on how many, how many steps uh, we do uh, in, the, in this path. So send to itself is easy. Can send it is relatively easy. Uh, so send the gram uh, becomes slightly uh, more time consuming. It consumes, uh, um, so overall, there is under 37 nanoseconds in, uh, in, in, uh, between these two functions. And these are uh, related to uh, locking the socket buffer, alloc allocating the M buffer, copying data from user space to the kernel. Then you see that uh, there is some other time spent in, for instance, in UDP output where you prepare the UDP header. The UDP header is just 8 or 16 bytes, really 
something really stupid and small, and yet the kernel spends 57 nanoseconds on, on this particular operation. IP output, slightly more complex because it has compute the output interface. In our system, there was only one interface, so there is no reason why the process should be complex. The route table is uh, one entry, etc., etc. Yet, this uh, costs uh, 198 nanoseconds. Ether output, even simpler. You, you have the interface, you have basically to build a 14 bytes uh, header, 162 nanoseconds. Now, this is FreeBSD. Uh, somebody could say Linux is much better. Well, there might be a factor of two between FreeBSD and Linux, but that's the, the, the cost overall. Then you go into the device driver, which is uh, where you, you try to adapt the, the buffer that stores the packet in a uh, OS-dependent system in a format that uh, is suitable for the network interface. And this basically means uh, shuffling some pointers and writing the length of the packet somewhere and starting the, the transmission, 220 nanoseconds. This is like 600 clock cycles on, on, a, on a modern machine. So how can we reach uh, uh, data rates of uh, 10, 14 million packets per second, which is the uh, maximum data rate uh, on a 10 gig interface, if we are spending more than the time, more than our budget in each of these uh, steps. Of course, we, we need to revise the system globally to make everything more efficient. Now, by looking at, sometimes uh, you have a very expensive operation uh, done in many steps, and then you find that 90% of the time is spent on one step. That's easy, you optimize, try to optimize it, and, and you're done. In this case, as we see, there are many places where we spend a lot of time and we need uh, to optimize things. So what we tried to do with NetMap, and then the experience was nice because uh, we could uh, recycle uh, the same ideas in other parts uh, of, um, of the system in the Valley Switch and in other projects. Uh, the idea was try and look at whether these operations are really necessary, whether they can be removed, simplified, amortized uh, over large batches, um, or somehow uh, are there ways in which we can reduce the cost of this uh, operation? And uh, of course, uh, when we want to send uh, packets using our NetMap API, we don't use the socket, uh, we don't use the send to, and we don't call all this function. But uh, we try to simplify all the steps uh, so that uh, we could achieve our uh, very high data rates. And that was done both in the, input, in the output path, uh, which is what you see here, and the input path, which is uh, not too different from uh, what we see here. Um, are there alternatives? Are we trying to solve a problem that has been solved already by someone else? Uh, well, there are alternatives to do packet I.O. Um, some of them are really slow, sockets for instance, and the variation BPF row sockets. So those are not a solution to the problem, performance problem we are having. Uh, some people thought, okay, most of the time it's possibly spent in copying data. This is not actually true. If you go back to this picture, you see that the time spent in copying data is only 20% of the total. Yet, uh, when memories uh, were much slower than uh, these days, uh, that was perhaps more consuming more than 20%. And so some people came out with the idea of mapping packet buffers from the kernel to user space, so you didn't need to, to make the copy. So Linux has a special socket type, which is called PFPacket, uh, which uh, was originally developed by uh, Luca Deri, uh, which is actually a friend of mine and lives in Pisa, and called PFRing at the time. Uh, it 
solves a part of the problem. It gives you 20-30% gain over the uh, use of sockets, but not all of that. Another option is to try and run everything within the kernel. If you run everything within the kernel, you save a few of the steps that we've seen before. You save the data copy part, and perhaps uh, you can uh, intercept the data path, uh, not at the top, but uh, somewhere in the middle. So you can remove some of the steps from, uh, um, from, from your data path and make processing faster. So uh, many operating systems offer you a way to um, attach directly to some point in the network stack. On uh, Linux, it's called NetFilter. On FreeBSD, it's called uh, PFIL and NetGraph. There are two different options. On Windows, uh, you have the NDS hooks. Uh, there is another system which is called the Click, where you can, it's a very nice uh, system where you can compose modules uh, that performs various types of processing and end up talking directly to the network interface. And this can be really fast. Um, however, it, it is also as dangerous as it normally is to run things in the kernel. You make a mistake, you're probably crashing the entire machine because you're accessing memory that you shouldn't, you're um, reprogramming devices that uh, uh, you should uh, left, uh, leave alone, etc. Another option is to map uh, the entire device to user space. Normally, devices are managed by the kernel, which uh, programs the registers of the device in a safe way. And uh, there are some um, solutions that allow you to expose uh, all the registers of the device uh, to user space. So basically, you, you write a device driver in user space. This is partly dangerous. Some of these mechanisms give you some kind of protection. So for instance, uh, you can program the device, but you cannot program, you can program the network card, but not other stuff that you don't, do not own. You can program the network card to uh, read and write to memory buffers, but not uh, uh, to other uh, regions of memory. So this is very hardware specific because basically uh, you have to write one version of your code for the Intel card, another one for Chelsea, another one for whatever. Um, you're, you're bringing the operating system into user space. And then there are vendors that have uh, custom libraries uh, uh, that they sell with their own hardware because uh, they realize that uh, the standard uh, device drivers and operating system are not able to sustain the data rates that you want. So for instance, Intel has a library called DPDK, which is a variation of this uh, user space uh, device mapping. Uh, SolarFlare has a library called OpenOnLoad where they emulate uh, the socket library and then they control directly the, um, uh, the network card. Again, these are solutions that might work, uh, but uh, then you're tied to a single vendor. So if you want to do something that uh, is reasonably general and uh, can survive uh, the decisions of a specific vendor to discontinue a card or a product, etc., then you really need uh, to look there to look at uh, something else or to develop something else, which is what uh, we uh, try to do with the uh, NetMap. So we, uh, in, uh, start, when we started this project, we had a few design principles and uh, they are listed here. Basically, we didn't want to rely or require any special hardware feature. Sometimes it's easy to, to make a system fast by uh, buying hardware that does everything or almost everything you need, and then you rely on that but then you limit your uh, opportunity of uh, using your solution on, on, on other uh, devices. Um, another thing we wanted to do, we knew that uh, it was necessary to do that. There are some, some operations that uh, cannot be uh, 
completely remove the uh, like memory copies or, or so. And so we wanted to amortize the uh, cost of this operation over large batches. Uh, system calls are one thing, but also uh, some other some other operation in in the, in the device driver, for instance, are suitable to uh, amortizing uh, the cost. Uh, we also try to remove unnecessary work. Uh, for instance, copying data is not really necessary if you can map the the buffers to user space. Allocating in the allocating buffers, as it is done normally in device drivers, is not really necessary if you can try to pre-allocate the resources. Uh, the other thing was reduce runtime decision, basically play the simple Tetris game instead of the complex one that is played by uh, Linux and FreeBSD with the, or, uh, the complex uh, uh, buffer uh, representation in the kernel. The key thing was uh, um, dealing with device drivers because device drivers are typically a very large piece of software, uh, piece of software like three to five thousand lines of code, even more possibly, and quite often they uh, relate to undocumented features of the hardware. The device driver comes from the vendor, and you have no idea the ten or twenty or fifty registers that are touched by the device driver in order to set up the link. You have no idea what is the meaning of the individual bits, etc. Uh, you might have some idea of what happens on, on the part of the device that handles uh, packets, uh, send and receive packets, but that's most uh, of the things you know about a, a, a specific piece of hardware. So we wanted to, we needed to modify device driver in order to get good performance, but uh, uh, we wanted to limit our modifications uh, only to the part uh, that uh, was strictly related to sending and receiving packets, not all the rest. And also we wanted to uh, build this modification in a way that could be easily applied to different versions um, of the software and to different device drivers. And that, that's mostly for portability. I don't want to spend the rest of my life uh, maintaining the software and also uh, I don't want to, uh, my, my, my software to be obsoleted by, by the fact that uh, device driver changes in Linux that happens every couple of weeks probably, and I have no idea how to apply a thousand lines of patches to that uh, driver. <clears throat> so what did we do for, for NetMap? We basically designed a new API to send a receive packet, which is uh, built around the shared memory region. The user process and the kernel, uh, or better, the user process and the network interface, or the way you see the network interface, communicate uh, through a region of memory, which is like this. Um, at the bottom, we have three different uh, data structures. Uh, the bottom, we have uh, packet buffers, which are large enough to store an entire packet, so you have no fragmentation, at least in the initial netmap. This is something we are changing now, but for the reason that I'll talk about. Um, Packet buffers are visible to user space and are also directly accessible by the network controller. So if you uh, use a program, move data in here, there is no need to copy data somewhere else in order for the NIC to send the, the, the packet out and vice versa on the receive path. Then there is uh, um, an array, circular array, which is called the netmap ring, uh, which is uh, mimics the behavior of a circular array which is called the NIC ring. Basically, mm, all the network interfaces that are on the market uh, store information about the packet uh, 
to be sent or received in a circular array, and this nick ring as a format which is device specific. And mostly the information that is here is a pointer to, to the buffer, the length of the packet, and a few flags. Now, we wanted something that was uh, as much as possible independent from the specific device. So we don't want to deal with the representation used by Intel, Broadcom, uh, Realtek, or someone else. So we designed uh, our own format for the, for the ring. And our format is um, the simplest one that you can think of. For each, uh, for each buffer, you have the length, you have a few flags, and you have uh, some kind of pointer to the buffer. Uh, what you read here is index, uh, not pointer, because uh, you have to remember that this memory vision is visible to user space and to the, to the kernel, and those are separate memory visions. So the base address of this region could be actually is different for the kernel and for user space. If I put a pointer here, I would have to do the translation um, of the address uh, um, and actually, the, the, the memory in the kernel might not even be contiguous, so the translation might be tricky. So instead of putting a pointer, I just put an index here. The index is uh, used uh, by some macros in user space and some macros in the kernel to convert to the proper address of the buffer in these two different uh, address spaces. And of course, in addition to the uh, descriptors of the individual packets, uh, you have the usual information to uh, manage the producer and the consumer on, on this ring. In our particular case, instead of having pointer to the tail and the head of, uh, of the ring, we have uh, two integers. One is uh, called the car, is the current uh, transmitter receive position, and the other one is called avail, is the number of slots that you have available to send or receive. That turns out to be more convenient uh, um, from a user's uh, perspective, um, for a device driver perspective. Then there is some extra metadata, but uh, we don't care about this. Another thing that we have uh, is this, uh, this array called NetMapIF. Uh, modern uh, network interfaces, uh, in, in an attempt to improve the performance, implement not just a single transmitter receive queue, but multiple receive and transmitter receive queues. And the idea was uh, uh, the Operating system and the drivers are really slow, as we have seen, but the hardware is fast. So, uh, and we, on modern machines, we have multiple cores that uh, can send and receive packet. So, ideally, we would like to improve performance, and one way to do that is to have uh, multiple cores try to drive the interface uh, uh, at the same time, uh, using independent data structures so they don't have to synchronize on them. So the vendors have, uh, uh, are coming out with the interfaces that have multiple uh, transmitter receive rings, and you can, in principle, allocate uh, one ring per core, so you have a parallel activity on, uh, on all those uh, queues. Then, of course, uh, the the output traffic is merged to the, to the single uh, link that is going out. The input traffic is um, demultiplexed to the various uh, input queues uh, according to some internal rule on the NIC. But it was important for us to, to have a way to support this feature of, uh, of the hardware. So basically, that's the data structure that the user program sees uh, when it wants to co communicate uh, using the NetMap API. And, uh, in terms of protection, once you have shared memory, you must be careful that uh, anything the user can do on this shared memory doesn't crash the kernel. And uh, this is achieved uh, in a very simple way. Basically, all the data structure that uh, are exported to user space are uh, 
not used directly by, by the kernel unless there is a validation phase uh, by the kernel itself. So, um, packet buffers, okay, those are buffers, and if we want to give the ability, the user the ability to send any data, we must allow any, any, anything in this buffer, so we don't need to check their content. The netmap ring contains pointers to the buffer and the length of the packet, and uh, the kernel uses this information to program the actual NIC to do the transmission, and of course, in doing the, this uh, programming, it can uh, validate the information here, make sure that uh, indexes the is actually pointing to one of the buffers that the uh, user uh, has access to, the length is correct, and so on. And this part is just used by the user space process, but not by, by the kernel, so there is no danger of, uh, of uh, corrupting data structures in, uh, in the kernel itself. So let's go to the NetMap API to give you an idea of uh, how simple it is to use it. And basically the idea is similar to what is done uh, when you want to use a socket. You create a, a handle that uh, lets you manipulate the resource, you bind uh, the socket to some address or some port, uh, etc., and then you start sending and receiving. In the NetMap case, uh, you create uh, the, the resource by opening a special device. Uh, it returns a file descriptor. Then the binding is done with uh, this IOCTL, and the argument of the IOCTL is a data structure which contains the name of the interface that you want to uh, bind to. At this point, uh, the uh, file descriptor is uh, uh, bound to the network interface, and you have control over the network interface, uh, disconnecting it from the regular uh, host stack. Of course, you have to do an MMAP so that this region is available to the user space process. And then um, you send and receive data by filling the packet buffers, uh, updating the pointers in the NetMap ring, and then calling an IOCTL to tell the kernel that you want to transmit data or to ask the kernel whether there are packets that are available. The IOCTL is um, um, non-blocking, so it tells the kernel that you want to transmit data. Packets are not necessarily transmitted uh, immediately, but the contract between you and the kernel is that uh, you process will leave the buffers alone until the kernel has notified you during uh, an upcoming uh, IOCTL that uh, those buffers have been actually transmitted. And the same for receive, the, the, the kernel will tell you, okay, there are three buffers, three, three new packets available. At this point, uh, you are the owner of the, those buffers, you can play with them and then return those buffers to the kernel once you have uh, completed processing of the incoming information. Um, Non-blocking system calls are nice because they are very fast, but uh, they require you to do um, to spin on the file descriptor and do busy waiting for incoming information, which is not good in general. You want to have some form of synchronization, and given that we have a file descriptor, we can pass the NetMap file descriptor to Paul and select them. So, uh, same as any uh, other socket or uh, file, uh, actual file descriptor. And we can be notified when, for instance, uh, uh, there are new packets to be received or when there are slots that are available for transmissions. So it's very easy to adapt a, a program that uh, normally runs uh, in, uh, in an event loop to use NetMap instead of uh, a regular socket because you, you have the same, uh, the same abstraction for synchronization. Um, how do you access the host stack? So whenever you're using the interface in NetMap mode, the interface is disconnected from the host stack. And 
before that, the interface is connected to the host stack because we use the same uh, device driver to turn the interface on, uh, set the link speed, uh, set IP addresses if we want, etc., etc. Now, after the disconnection, uh, we still want somehow to be able to send the packets that are coming from the network interface to the host stack and vice versa. The host stack will still believe that the interface is there. We have controlled, our process has control of the interface, but uh, uh, we haven't told the kernel that, uh, uh, that we have cut the, the link. So what, what happens? Uh, it's very simple. The way we implemented it is very simple. The, the, uh, the connection from the host stack to the interface um, is uh, terminated over a couple of uh, netpub rings and set of buffers. One for packets from the host going down and one from packet for packets that uh, we want to push back into the host stack. And uh, so we can uh, access that part of the, um, of the interface uh, in the same way by opening uh, dev netmap uh, binding uh, to, um, to the host stack part of the interface. And then we can send and receive packets over those two rings uh, using uh, the same strategy. Um, again, we, we have an easy way to move packets from the host stack to the interface because uh, we can simply take the buffers from one ring, link the buffer to the, to the other ring down, and then call the EOCTL to push the, the packets down. In terms of porting application, uh, I said already that we have a selectable file descriptor, so we can manually alter our application to, to use NetMap. Of course, that requires work, and this is something that we cannot uh, always do. For instance, uh, if we have no access to the sources, or we don't want to, we cannot, uh, we cannot rebuild the application. So one thing that we have built, and it's very small and compact, is a LibreCap library that uses the NetMap API underneath. So if you have a LibreCap uh, application that, uh, for instance, sniffs traffic uh, or tries to monitor traffic, etc., you can simply run it on top of NetMap by uh, replacing the pickup library with ours at runtime. So it um, doesn't even require a compilation of, uh, of the software. <coughs> Coming to performance, which is the, the main reason uh, why we uh, started this project, you, here you get an idea of uh, the kind of speed that you can get uh, with uh, NetMap. So uh, the, the, this graph uh, shows the, the throughput for uh, packet generator uh, using uh, one or more cores at different uh, clock speeds. Uh, I, I, we use uh, different clock speeds because uh, NetMap is so fast that uh, it saturates the link if you run the CPU at top speed. So you, you cannot even see if your uh, optimization to the code are effective or not unless you um, clock down the, the CPU. Anyways, the curve at the bottom is what you can get uh, on FreeBSD or Linux or also with uh, a socket application doing uh, send two continuously, about a million packets per second with uh, one core. So Linux folks realized that uh, there was a need for fast uh, traffic generator and they have a kernel module which is called PacketGem, uh, which pushes packet uh, as fast as possible and uh, it's within the kernel and it achieves, at full speed, it achieves about uh, 4 million packets per second with a single core. And these three curves uh, uh, show you what you can get with uh, NetMap. We have uh, another packet generator with NetMap. Again, our poor fantasy in picking up names. Uh, our packet generator is called PacketGen with a dash after packet. And 
it can do line rate at about 900 megahertz, so 14.88 million packets per second at uh, 900 megahertz. And uh, the receive speed is more or less the same. And this scales pretty well if you have uh, multiple cores uh, and an interface that support multiple queues. Uh, you can attach one core to each queue, very simply. And uh, so, for instance, for two queues, we saturated 450 megahertz. With uh, four queues, uh, uh, you, you can only actually clock the, down, clock the processor at uh, discrete speeds. In our system, we could do 150, 300, 450, etc. So this point is uh, 300 megahertz, and probably uh, we are not using 100% of the, of the CPU at uh, this level. Using NetMap uh, uh, as an I.O. mechanism, we ported several applications uh, and we modified several applications to use it. And uh, this the normal speed up was between 5 and 10 times, depending on, on the application. In some cases, we just replaced the library uh, with uh, the pickup library with one based on NetMap. In some other cases, uh, for instance, Click, uh, we use a native interface. Uh, we have the FreeBSD firewall, which is called IPFW. We have a version that runs in user space and co uh, communicates with the interface using NetMap. And, and again, by simply running the code in user space and using NetMap for I.O. gave us a uh, uh, tenfold uh, speed improvement. Uh, yeah. Uh, what is not clear to me is, uh, do, do you have to do the entire stack, protocol stack processing in user space? It depends on, on, what, on your application. All the applications... If you're doing TCP, um, I come to this later, but if you're doing TCP, packet rate is not your problem because uh, in TCP, uh, packets are typically large. You have other problems. You have problems uh, with throughput, with memory copies. Uh, if your application is serving uh, many small connections, you have a problem with the scalability of accept, uh, all other things. Fine, fine. <laughs> what I'm trying to understand is Am I reusing, am I able, by using NetBot, am I able to reuse operating system parts for, pro for doing stack protocol stack processing? Or mm, if I want to do a specific stack? Not really, but uh, there is no point in using NetMap because your bottleneck is not NetMap. Uh, it's not a packet The packet IO is uh, accounting for perhaps 20% of your CPU time. So you could as well use the standard stack and the standard device driver and don't bother with, with NetMap. For, to, to get you the idea, at uh, 10 gigabit per second with 1500 byte packets, the packet rate is less than a million packets per second. And, and, most, and uh, if you remember the initial slide, the device driver spends about 200 nanoseconds per packet. You have a budget of uh, one microsecond per packet. So even if you remove completely the time, uh, you're still left with the other 800 nanoseconds, which is part of the TCP processing. And that's expensive. Now, there are ways to optimize it. For instance, if you use DSO, if you use checksum of loading, etc. But uh, this is not what NetMap is for. Now, one thing that came out uh, for importing application to NetMap was that, uh, and this is obvious, once you remove a bottleneck, then you hit the, the next one. And the next one might be very close. So, in, for instance, in the case of OpenVSwitch, well, OpenVSwitch, the user space version was a horrible piece of software. It could only do 50,000 packets per second. 
which is poor by all, any standard. I mean, <laughs> there's no reason it should go so slow. In, uh, in our NetMap version, we reach uh, about 3 million packets per second, which is five times faster than the internal version in Linux. Um, but uh, for instance, for Click, uh, Click uh, was doing, uh, I think, about uh, half a million packets per second. And when we uh, replaced the pickup library with NetMap, we went up to 1.2, which is more than twice as fast, but not as much as we expected. And it turned out that uh, the C++ memory allocator was consuming all the time. Replacing the allocator with something else, we managed to get uh, about 4 million packets per second. And something not with IPFW, but with other application, we had similar experience. Generally, uh, every, everybody thinks, okay, network I.O. is a problem, so I will not spend the time optimizing other parts of my code, because every, any, anyways, uh, that part is the bottleneck which is reasonable in terms of uh, developer's time. Uh, except that when, when you replace the network I.O. and remove your bottleneck, sometimes you find out that uh, um, that wasn't the, 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 the main culprit for your poor performance. You, you have some other, some other issues in your code. Anyways, it's an interesting exercise to try and optimize an application once you have a, a very fast I.O. mechanism. Of course, all we have here is something that requires a very fast network interface. And uh, not everybody has them, uh, they're expensive, uh, they require a 16-lane uh, PCI slot, which is not available on many workstations, etc., etc. So the next step was, um, is there a way we can use the um, NetMap API without the hardware? And uh, I've, for all of my career, built software switches since my graduation thesis, and so, <laughs> I thought, okay, that, that could be a possible application. So I started to, to see how to um, use the NetMap API and interconnect uh, ports, NetMap ports, uh, uh, between each other. And that turned out to be pretty straightforward. A few hundred lines of code in the same module that implements NetMap was enough to build a software switch, which we call the Vale for Virtual Local Ethernet. Um, it started as... A, a project to just uh, have an easy way to test NetMap applications. So we could uh, develop them without the hardware and then deploy them uh, uh, on machines that had the actual 10 gig port. Then it turned out that uh, this uh, software switch is even faster than a 10 gig interface. And, uh, and so there might be even uh, some use, uh, uh, for instance, for interconnecting uh, virtual machines. Again, I'm Given that I'm probably short of time, I will not go through the various options that you have for um, interconnecting virtual machine. But basically, the, the way we can use our virtual switch is to um, use the NetMap API, specify a device name, which is not a generic interface, ATH0 or IX0 or whatever you have in the operating system, but a name with this syntax where Vale is recognized as a special keyword that means, okay, I want to interconnect to a virtual switch. Then the first part uh, before the column is uh, the switch name, and the second part is the port name. And dynamically, the, uh, the valid switch create, uh, creates multiple switches and multiple ports, and uh, you, you can uh, connect uh, your processes. Uh, in the valid switch, uh, operation is sender-driven, and uh, it is also charged to the sender. So if you have a gen packet generator which wants to send traffic, uh, all the cost of copying data from one port to the other is charged to the, to the thread that uh, is uh, sending the, the packets. 
um, writes are not blocking, and if there is congestion on an output queue, packets are simply dropped. And this was a, a way to simplify operation because um, in some cases the, the switch has uh, one source and multiple destinations. It's very difficult to uh, arbitrate, uh, ac um, decide what to do when uh, a sender is blocked on multiple uh, output ports uh, and, and vice versa. When uh, multiple senders are blocked on a single uh, output port, it's not completely trivial to decide whom to wake up and so on. In terms of performance, now, it, it seems that making the system faster is completely straightforward, but uh, is n it is not. Uh, com coming back to this picture, consider the case where you have this, this source that is sending packet uh, to multiple output interfaces. So if you implement a switch in a straightforward way, you would uh, take the first packet, uh, lock the first output interface, send the packet, unlock, then move to the second packet, it goes to a different interface, lock it, send, unlock, etc., etc. So all the locking in this way becomes extremely expensive. So we had to uh, use a different strategy, and the strategy is basically uh, try to accumulate packet for every single destination, and then uh, do the locking and forwarding one destination at a time, instead of uh, one packet at a time. The next thing was, uh, at these speeds, uh, uh, we are talking about uh, tens of million uh, packets per second. Uh, at these speeds, uh, if we have to access data in memory, there is a fair chance that uh, the, the data will not be in main memory. And the access time for, the, sorry, the data will not be in cache. The access time for main memory is in the order of 50 to 100 nanoseconds, which is more than the budget that we have. So we also needed to to run our processing in a few stages to uh, exploit the prefetching of the data. So in the end, uh, the, the valid switch uh, works like this. Basically, it uh, takes a bunch of packets from the NetPub ring that has, have to be sent, copies part of them to a temporary array. Uh, during this copy, we also issue, uh, we only copy the metadata of the packet, basically the length, and the pointer to the uh, actual packet buffer, data buffer. Then we also issue prefetch instruction on the, on the payload. So by the time we are back, uh, hopefully we have uh, data closer to, to the cache. And so we don't waste too much time uh, waiting for uh, the reads to be completed. Then we do uh, the computation of the destination interface. And then we assemble the, the packets uh, on the, in lists for each uh, destination interface to, so that we can do the forwarding one interface at a time. So we pay the cost of locking once per interface per batch instead of uh, once per packet, uh, which is, uh, would be a lot more expensive. And so the data rates that we achieved this way on an Intel machine, i7, and it was about 18 to 20 million packets per second with the minimum size frames, and about 70 gigabits per second with the 1500 byte frames. And that involves a data copy. I like NetMap, which in principle is zero copy. So with the, the NetMap between two interfaces, you can move data from one interface to the other without even touching data, without even moving data to memory, if you know the destination. Of course, if you have to do the lookup of the address, uh, you have to read part of the packet, but not, not, not all of it. So that could be completely zero copy. In the case of the valley switch, uh, we want to have a copy because uh, we want to isolate the, the sender and the receiver process. Uh, we cannot allow the sender to modify stuff in the receiver and vice versa. Uh, we cannot allow the receiver to see uh, packets that have not been already, uh, that have not been yet sent uh, to, uh, to the receiver. 
and uh, copying is a lot cheaper than uh, playing with the page table and validating the TLB on different CPUs. Uh, okay, this is a graph comparing the performance of various uh, switching uh, solutions. Uh, this is the packet rate uh, depending on the number of destination. Uh, a bridge typically, uh, a bridge normally identifies a, an individual destination, so it has to do a single copy to the one destination, but for broadcast traffic or for traffic for which you have no idea where the destination is, you have to do the copy on multiple ports. So that those are the curves, for instance, for uh, the valet switch. This one, the second one, is the curve for a solution that uses uh, hardware support. Many NICs, uh, many modern NICs, uh, can be programmed to appear as uh, different interfaces connected to different virtual machines and do the switching between their ports. And this switching goes through uh, the PCI Express bus, which has uh, much less bandwidth than the memory bus. This is why hardware-supported solution in this case is uh, slower than our completely software solution. Now, the next step was um, how can we do network I.O. very quickly uh, within virtual machines. So when you have a virtual machine, uh, what you find is that the, the, there is a huge performance gap between uh, the network speed in the virtual machine itself and in bare metal, the, the software running on actual, actual hardware. And part of it is uh, because uh, when it comes to driving peripherals, uh, even if your CPU has uh, support for virtual machines, uh, you really need to uh, run some expensive operation. Basically, whenever you do an uh, I.O. instruction to program a device, or a memory mapped I.O. as it is called, you have to exit the uh, virtual machine mode on your CPU and emulate the behavior of the peripheral in software. And the emulation itself is not terribly complex. Sometimes it's just a matter of writing a value in a register or uh, running a short section of code to do the actual I.O. But uh, exiting the virtual machine mode and re-entering the virtual machine mode and possibly synchronizing with another thread is consuming uh, uh, a lot of time. We have measured between 3 and 10 microseconds depending on, on the hardware, even on modern uh, CPUs, i5, i7, etc. So um, it is not a problem when you're doing bulk I.O., for instance, uh, with a disk controller, emulated disk controller, or with uh, large packets, because the packet rate is relatively low. Uh, we are talking about packet rate or transaction rate. We are talking about uh, maybe 10,000 transactions per second. This is bearable. Even if the individual transaction is costing you five extra microseconds, you're still within uh, 10 or 20% of the throughput that, that you can achieve. But on a network, the packets can be very short. And uh, besides, the, 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 the data rate, especially in, for incoming traffic, is completely out of your control. So um, you have to be able to, to cope with very high packet rates. And if you are spending five microseconds for each packet, you're, you're out of luck. Um, so what happens? Uh, what are the solutions that are used with the virtual machine to uh, work around this, uh, this limitation? Um, some vendors figure out, uh, or thought uh, actually, that it was impossible to uh, achieve uh, high speed with uh, emulation of a network device. And so they came out with a solution uh, which relies on special device driver. 
called uh, virtualized or para-virtualized device driver. So you might have heard about uh, VirtaIOF uh, in Linux and QEMU, or VMXNet uh, for VirtualBox and um, Zen as another solution too. So the idea behind uh, these, uh, those virtualized device drivers is that uh, uh, they don't require, they, they, they expose a, a device which is not a any, anything like a physical NIC. Uh, they don't expose a register that need the memory map DIO to, to, uh, to be accessed to actually send the packet or receive the packet. The managing of interrupt is a lot cheaper and uh, they are tightly integrated uh, with the operating system uh, in, the, in the host. And by using those solutions, uh, uh, they managed to, to get uh, very high throughputs. And maybe not very high packet rates, but very high throughputs. And the high throughput is achieved uh, by playing a number of tricks. Uh, uh, like, for instance, um, when uh, I probably have a, a picture that uh, represents, sorry. Okay, take this part of the picture. Uh, what happens when you want to interconnect a virtual machine to another virtual machine, which would be hanging off this other part of the virtual switch? You try to send the packet here, and the packet goes through a piece of software to the other virtual machine. If this uh, were a regular Ethernet switch, uh, you would be limited by 1500 byte uh, segment. But this is not a regular switch. So if you are having a TCP connection between one virtual machine and another one, you can pretend the interface is uh, moving packets uh, 1500 bytes each. But in fact, you can also pretend that the interface is able to do a thing called uh, TCP segmentation offloading or TSO, where you send the NIC uh, a large segment, 64K, and the NIC itself will segment uh, this uh, large segment into individual uh, smaller packets. Now, this is all software, so the NIC pretends that it does TSO, but it really doesn't. The NICs can also pretend that they do a checksum of loading, they compute the checksum of the packet, but since the packet is going to another piece of software on the same machine, you can even skip the checksum of loading. And by using this, these tricks, uh, the people doing VirtIO and, and companies selling virtualization solutions are able to do um, more than 10, more than 20 gigabit per second across a TCP connection between two virtual machines. Of course, if you, if you take the, the standard emulated device driver, the, the speed that they achieve is really low. In terms of packet per second, uh, the maximum they can get is between uh, 10 and 20,000. And uh, so the, the throughput follows from this uh, very low packet rate. So we were, were trying to figure out is there a fundamental difference between uh, those virtualized device drivers and the NICs that uh, we normally use on, 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 on the hardware? And uh, if there is not, is there a way to, to achieve a similar level of performance on, uh, on a virtual machine without having to, to resort to a, a completely different device driver? The, the motivation for not using a completely different device driver is that some older operating system might not have it, uh, might not have support for those uh, uh, device drivers. And, uh, and, and also, if there were only a single para-virtualized device driver, then it would make sense to have only one solution for all. But then every company is coming out with its own solution. So probably, uh, maybe we can just use or modify a standard uh, emulated device driver for our purposes and to get the same level of performance. So to make things uh, short, and then, and then I'll give you a pointer to, to the slide. Uh, what we did, 
is to implement a number of solutions uh, that, uh, um, okay, that uh, uh, move performance to the very low values that we were seeing uh, with uh, QM and KVM to something that is similar to the power virtualized device driver. And uh, we basically used use uh, three different techni techniques plus another step which was to use our valley switch to interconnect virtual machine and get another speed improvement and the three step the three steps were are listed here first thing was uh, implementing interrupt moderation so interrupt moderation is a technique that uh, was devised 15 years ago perhaps in regular NICs. Uh, the problem at the time was that interrupt processing was very expensive and every time you receive a packet you generate an interrupt to spend everything it's spend a lot of cycles uh, managing the interrupt. Since the incoming traffic is uncontrolled, the uh, system ended up doing nothing but managing interrupts and uh, were not able to do anything useful after that. So in most devices this day imp implement uh, this feature which, which is uh, do not send another interrupt to the CPU unless uh, a minimum time has elapsed uh, since the previous interrupt. So there is a trade-off between the latency uh, with which you notify incoming packs to the to the operating system and the efficiency with which you can uh, process uh, interrupts because uh, with the interrupt moderation whenever you get an interrupt you have a batch of packets to process so you can uh, you, so you can amortize the the processing time over the entire batch so it turns out that uh, on uh, most um, virtual machine um, uh, monitor or hypervisors, uh, they, as they are called, uh, moderation was not implemented at all. And, uh, and that was uh, partly responsible for the poor performance that uh, we were seeing, both in the send and the uh, receive part. The second technique is called uh, send combining and is uh, somewhat related uh, to interrupt moderation. So the typical, the typical scheme on um, on a physical machine is that you send a packet and you get an interrupt when the packet uh, has been uh, transmit completely transmitted. On a physical machine the interrupt uh, arrives uh, somewhat after your actual transmission so you have some time to do uh, other things in, in the process. On a virtual machine you send a packet, uh, you exit uh, the uh, virtual machine emulation you enter the peripheral emulation, the peripheral emulation probably sends the packet immediately, so by the time you return to the virtual machine, you immediately get the interrupt. And you have no, no um, opportunity to do something else, merge more packets in individual packet transmission, etc. So by, by putting together the interrupt moderation and combining, what we did was uh, you send a packet, and to say in order to send a packet, you have to program some registers, and then uh, after the uh, transmission of the packet uh, uh, we don't generate immediately an interrupt because of interrupt moderation so we are in the dead time of a few microseconds before before generating the packet then we return to um, to the virtual machine emulation perhaps the virtual machine has other packets to send but instead of actually sending them uh, we wait until we get the interrupt. We simply queue the packet and wait until we get the interrupt. That means that instead of spending the time for programming the NIC to send the packet now, we postpone this operation until we get the interrupt. When we get the interrupt, then we can uh, tell the NIC, okay, there is not just a single packet, there are 
52 packets since the previous transmission, we can send them all uh, out at once, and then we can amortize the time of emulation in, uh, in this way. The third trick is called uh, paravirtualization, and uh, without entering into many details, uh, paravirtualization is basically the same trick that is used by Virtual.io and other scheme. And uh, the idea is that uh, instead of having the virtual machine and the actual hardware or the operating system synchronized through uh, uh, access to the emulated memory uh, registers. The synchronization occurs through a block of shared memory, which uh, is accessed by the virtual machine itself, and a thread on the host uh, system. Uh, now, there is no actual synchronization in accessing this memory. So, in order to communicate, uh, we need that uh, both the virtual machine and the thread and the thread on, on, the, on the host are continuously uh, spinning on this memory so that one writes, uh, writes and the other one uh, can read and see that uh, there has been some modification and some information that needs to be, to be passed along. But uh, <coughs> by implementing this kind of uh, power virtualization, uh, we managed to reach the same data rates of uh, the uh, Virtio devices, etc. Now, in terms of why should we do this? We did this because uh, uh, it required uh, very little modifications uh, to the existing device driver. Interrupt moderation is something that uh, you only need to implement on the host side, on the hypervisor. No modification on the guest operating system. And it's, it was a matter of uh, 100 lines of code or so. Send combining is something that you only need to do on the guest operating system, nothing on, on the host. Again, a very small modification to the device driver. Paravirtualization requires modification on both sides. And again, it's a very small uh, chunk of code in, uh, in both uh, parts of the code and, and gives you a lot of performance improvement. So depending on the ability that you have to modify the hypervisor or the guest operating system, you can use one or more of these uh, techniques and get some advantages in terms of performance. Uh, the, there are differences, of course, depending on uh, what, uh, what options are you using. Now, I'll go to the, final, to the final slides that gives you the entire picture. So the numbers in, in black are uh, showing you the performance in the communication between two virtual machines using a regular Linux page for the interconnection. So the starting point was here. Uh, we have... Uh, 24,000 packets per second between two virtual machines using one, chip, one CPU each. And if the two virtual machines were using two CPUs uh, each, uh, we get slightly better performance, uh, 65,000 packets per second. By implementing interrupt moderation, uh, let's go back here, on, show only the black numbers. Interrupt moderation gives you some uh, improvement. So for instance, ITR is the delay uh, that uh, you uh, allowed before sending the, the next interrupt. Uh, by increasing this delay, uh, you get up to 90,000 packets per second, so almost uh, more than three times faster than uh, the um, original. The gain is much lower if you have uh, already two CPUs, basically because in the case of two CPUs, we, have only have, uh, we only have one sending thread, so we can waste the other CPU to, to process interrupts, and, and the effect is not so bad. Send combining by itself gives you 
nothing. If you compare this number with this number, basically they are in the same range. Except when you are, you, you are using two CPUs, then some combining is effective. Why? Because in the case of two CPUs, uh, one CPU is processing the transmission, the other one is processing the interrupts, and the short delay between uh, processing the interrupt and notifying the first CPU that the interrupt has occurred and so you should transmit the packet gives you enough opportunity to do the batching so that you get this uh, huge speed improvement. And uh, the same uh, advantage you have when, uh, when, you, uh, when you do send combining on one CPU and interrupt uh, moderation. And then if you do the parallel virtualization, which means having a thread on the host that spins monitoring the piece of memory that uh, passes information back and forth, then we get uh, to about half a million packets per second. So compared to the base value, we are between 10 and 20 uh, times faster. Hmm. Now, this is an impressive number, but not as fast as uh, we would like. And uh, the bottleneck here, and here the bottom, is basically the interconnect uh, between the virtual machine. If you use a standard Linux bridge, uh, it can only handle um, slightly more than half a million packets per second. So we needed something faster, but we have our software switch that uh, we can use for that. And in fact, by changing the Linux uh, switch with our software switch, we get to this level of performance. So we achieve about a million packets per second between two um, applications using socket on one virtual machine and receiving from the other virtual machine. Now, how fast is the system? Well, the bottleneck here, I mean, this uh, million packet per second is, is exactly what you, would, what you would get on a machine with a 10 gig interface, because uh, all the time is spent in the host stack, basically. Now, what if we have something faster on the, on the guests uh, to, to send packet? So we tried the same arrangement uh, by replacing the traffic generator with a NetMap-based application in the guest once and then one receiver, and then we got about uh, 5 million packets per second with the small packets and uh, 25 gigabit per second uh, with the 1500 byte packets. Now, this 25 is much slower than the 70 gigabytes per second that uh, we are having on the switch itself. But there is a reason for this, because uh, when we were measuring the performance in the switch, uh, there was only one data copy involved, or actually one transaction through the memory bus. In the case of a virtual machine communicating with another virtual machine, there are uh, three or four copies uh, going on, probably more than that. And, uh, and all these copies uh, um, contend uh, for the use of the memory bus, which has a limited capacity. Modern, system, modern systems have about 120, 150 gigabits per second of total memory capacity per, for each bank. So basically, this is close to what you can get given the number of uh, writes that uh, uh, you have in, uh, in the path. Now, uh, a few things on what we were, a few words on what we were doing, Grace. Oh, sorry, yeah. So if your VMs are on different hosts, how these numbers are going to change? Different costs, you mean interconnected through a network interface? Okay, okay I think the uh, million packets per second is not going to change. Uh, then it depends on how fast is the interconnect between the host and, uh, and the, net, the actual network interface. We have a version of QMO that uh, can talk directly to, um, to a NetMap interface. So in principle, uh, uh, you don't have the bottleneck. Uh, and, and so uh, I believe, but I haven't tested, I believe that you can have uh, 
uh, two virtual machines on different hosts able to, to exchange about five or possibly more than, than that million particles per second, uh, going through a 10 gigabit per second interface. And then, of course, the speed will be limited to 10 gig of the interface when you increase the packet size. <coughs> now, recently, um, we were playing uh, with uh, uh, TCP throughput. TCP throughput uh, was not particularly good. In our initial experiments, when I wrote uh, these slides, we were getting about 7 uh, gigabits per second between two machines, which is less than the UDP throughput. Why? Uh, TCP is window limited in many cases, and the, uh, the latency and the batching that we use in our system and the latency that, uh, we, um, that we have uh, uh, between the two virtual machines was really limiting the, the performance uh, we were getting. Now also, uh, the, the VirtIO in comparison was getting about 22 to 30 gigabits per second, the VirtIO solution which is close to the memory speed, uh, uh, to the capacity of the memory bus. Um, they were achieving this speed because of the tricks I was mentioning before. Basically, the actual packet rate is very low. They are sending 164k segment uh, at a time. So we are talking about 20 to 30,000 packets per second. Big packets, but uh, still packets per second. So the amount of processing in the various stages is limited. So we have extended NetMap uh, now in order to uh, use multiple buffer for a single packet. And buffers are still 2K as in the ordinary NetMap, but then we can have a set of up to 64 buffers uh, per, uh, per each packet. Um, there is still a copy involved, but that's okay because that is not uh, the bottleneck. We have another extension to NetMap so that instead of uh, requiring the, the data to be in the buffer in the shared memory, the data could be in the buffer in user space, completely in user space. That for the virtual machine environment is more convenient because the virtual machine expects to allocate uh, the, um, the network buffers uh, itself. It doesn't directly use the one supplied by, by NetMap. So then you'll be having an additional copy of the data in the user? Connection between virtual machines, yes. And actually, in our solution, there is one less copy than, uh, than what we have with uh, VirtIO. Uh, I, I don't know how the VMware solution works. Uh, but in terms of number of copies, unfortunately, if you cannot make any assumption on what the operating system does, uh, you have whatever copies the OS does, plus uh, the interconnect, plus uh, the copies on, on the receive sites. And some of them you cannot avoid. We are down to one copy in the, in the network path, which is probably the least we, we can do uh, with safety in mind. So that's it. Um, we are trying to make the code available as, uh, as we can, uh, either through FreeBSD or as patches on, uh, uh, available on my, on my web page. We are contributing back to QM as much as possible. Uh, some of this code is not completely stable, and as we move on, uh, we found potential improvements all the time. And since the, there is some deal, I mean, I can commit stuff in FreeBSD very easily, uh, try not to break things, but uh, um, uh, whereas uh, having patches accepted in QMO is slightly slower, they take time to review the patches, commit them, etc. So when I think that uh, I have something new in a week or two, I don't even bother to submit to them because uh, by the time they are looking at my patches, probably I have something better. And that delays the, the operation a little bit. But anyways, hopefully by 
September we should have something really stable and uh, very high performance too. Anyways, if you're interested, just email me and I'll, I'll send you a copy of our repository. Go now because we've run over. But um, if anybody would like to ask Luigi questions, I'm around for a couple of hours. Yeah, <laughs> Luigi's here for another two hours at least, so people are welcome to hang around for as long as they want to ask questions and chat. Okay. We may well thank Luigi again. And then.